Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Whitney Strube, Associate Professor of History and Director of Women's Studies and Gender Studies at Rucker University, Newark. We will discuss his article, Sanitizing the 70s, Pornography, Home Video, and the Editing of Sexual Memory, which is published in Feminist Media Histories. So welcome to the podcast, Whit. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm delighted. Yeah, no, I mean, so as you know, I've been a huge fan and follower of your work for many years. Um, in fact, more than a decade ago now, I think the second Law Review article I ever published on the the failed Abe Fortas nomination <laughs> in 67 relied really heavily on on your pioneering work in 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 that area and on the CDL and that kind of stuff in general so it's really a huge pleasure for me to be able to interview you about this new and totally fantastic and fascinating article that that you've written Oh, I'm completely flattered. And it's it's completely mutual, as you know. Um, I think the two of us have both long sought after that final lost Citizens for Decent Literature anti-porn film reel that I don't think we're ever going to find. I know. Target smut, man. It really is the, the holy grail, isn't it? It's, it's one of them, yeah. <laughs> so, So I thought for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with or may purport not to be familiar with the subject matter of of your article. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the time period in which the films and videos you're discussing were produced and the the kinds of films and videos that you're talking about in the article. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the time period is sort of a dual layer. Um, you know, I think you mentioned the subtitle of the article is Pornography, Home Video, and the Editing of Sexual Memory. And, and so what I'm interested here in is um, the sort of what they call the porno chic era um, of the 1970s when hardcore narrative films played theatrically for sort of mixed gender, you know, m- multiracial cross-class audiences for a brief window. Um and, and, you know, sort of drew a lot of national media coverage. And, and what I'm interested in is the translation of those movies into their home video iterations, mostly in the 1980s uh, and 1990s, and the ways that they were textually altered to sort of adapt them uh, to the, the Reagan years, uh, in which a lot of content was actually removed for the fi- from the films, um, mostly sort of transgressive content. And that left uh, a really altered archive, which a lot of academics who study pornography have drawn on for the past three decades, uh, a lot of the time without actually realizing that they were watching versions that differed from the theatrical versions. That, that's kind mm-hmm. of the, the abstract level um, synopsis, I guess. So for viewers who or for listeners who may not be uh, familiar with how pornographic material was distributed during the period of time that that you're discussing in your article. C- could you talk a little bit about sort of the modes of distribution of pornographic films during this period and how sort of 
changes in the modes and media in question might have enabled like the the bodlerization as it were of the content in question yeah absolutely uh the home video revolution really reshaped the ways people experienced pornography uh before home video became the dominant way of encountering uh hardcore cinema People of necessity mostly watched it in public spaces, right? In, in, in movie theaters, um, in a collective. But with the rise of Betamax and, v, you know, VHS especially, which wins the home video war, um, you know, people are renting movies often in public space, but taking them back to the domestic sphere to experience them privately. And so, you know, there, there is a profound shift in the ways people are experiencing pornography through the different mediums and their distribution styles. Um, and, and it's in that moment of transition that these texts are revisited because, of course, the, the film prints have to be transferred onto home video. And, and it's in those moments, you know, within the kind of corporate or bootlegger structures, because it, it is an anarchic kind of free-for-all market until there's a kind of corporate stabilization in the mid-1980s. Um, but it's in that moment when they're transferring the movies that they also then begin revising them and making these edits, which are which are not announced explicitly um, anywhere in you know on the on the rental boxes or anything. But uh, just I mean to give a concrete example, in the 1970s, uh, both straight and gay hardcore films featured a fair amount of of fisting, um, you know, a fairly transgressive sex act uh, involving you know the insertion of, of a fist into an orifice. Um, and and those scenes really begin disappearing immediately with the rise of home video. Um, and, and it's a good example of the ways that the sort of sexual landscape is then really reshaped. Uh, you know, a pornography that was never, you know, pornography has never been some polymorphously perverse utopia or anything like that. But But there was a diversity of sort of bodily pleasures on the screen that get narrowed down to a much more kind of genitally focused sexuality for again straight and gay porn movies in the 80s and so that's kind of what i'm looking into in the piece is is that narrowing of the pornographic imaginary uh is one way you might put it yeah i mean it was really interesting to me the way that the kind of shifts in the market for pornography enabled the tailoring of texts to sort of correspond to, respond to, and reflect the changing mores and expectations of different points in time, or like almost like these kind of inflection moments where, you know, people would rethink what kind of content was acceptable or appropriate, and then reshape the text in relation to that. And, and I loved your reference to to John Cleland in in that respect because it really reminded me that like this is like a historically very common phenomenon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um and I mean, you know, I think one thing that anybody who studies literary or filmic texts in any kind of historical manner would note, I mean, the text is always unstable, right? I mean, whether it's movies or novels, um, you know, in every way, textuality itself is just a fundamentally unstable thing, whether it's translation or changing pagination in, in the reissuing of a book or, you know, panning and scanning mainstream Hollywood movies for a, a different aspect ratio on VHS. I mean, you know, these things are always in flux, but especially when it comes to pornography, I mean, there there is another layer here of the kind of normative regulation of sexuality 
Uh, and so, yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, Fanny Hill is a novel from uh, the 18th century, and in its original iteration, it has a, a man-on-man, you know, sodomy scene um, that frequently disappears from later republishings. And so, yeah, this is definitely not a unique phenomenon by by any means. Um, the strange irony of it, though, I think, is that some of these historical texts, like Fanny Hill, are actually fairly well preserved in libraries and archives, whereas the much more recent uh, hardcore American pornographic cinema is actually very poorly preserved anywhere. Um, and and so these texts, even though you know they're in the lived memory of many people, uh, are not always actually accessible. And if you're looking for a, a 1980 Betamax copy of a gay porn movie you know, you probably can't even find it on eBay and it's not held in any archives. So it's it's a daunting research terrain. And I think that's one of the reasons that this is not such a visible phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I was taken with your observation that this is a body of cinema that's almost, almost as poorly preserved as, as the early nitrate silent films. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and in, on that front, I, I certainly owe a lot to some other scholars. I mean, David Church uh, and Peter Alalunis are, are film studies scholars who have written extensively on this. And, you know, when Peter Alalunis went to look for the first shot on video hardcore film, it was only from 1978, and he can't find a copy. They, they do not seem to exist. And his methodology is uh, relentless in its sort of archival pursuit. But, um, you know, these movies were just considered ephemeral uh, and and you know, some of them have been lost. So it's, you know, that does not help when one is trying to sort of have a granular tracking of, of this history. Right. So I, I was wondering if you could like dig a little bit more specifically into this, in, into like the precise kinds of material that was removed from films and, and why you think it was removed because you, you give several different examples and kind of, speculate and sort of point to circumstantial evidence as to why certain decisions were made. And I think it would be helpful for listeners to understand like precisely the kinds of content that were at issue and the kinds of choices that people were making when transferring a text from one medium to, to another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the three things that, immediately come to mind here because there there is a pretty huge array of sex acts uh that wind up eliminated from the home video incarnations and and they don't correspond cleanly to any particular ideology i think that that's one of the things that makes it a somewhat perplexing history at first glance um you know the movies did not become necessarily more progressive uh and but they also didn't become more misogynistic um, you know, it really seemed to correspond to a set of anxieties that I guess I'll get to in a second. But for three examples, just to make this concrete rather than abstract, I mean, like I said, fisting, uh, you know, is a sex act that really only emerges into visual culture in the 1970s. And so you see this in some landmark gay porn films. Um, Fred Halstead's L.A. Plays Itself from 1972 is often considered a landmark of gay liberation cinema um, because it's got a very sort of radical, uh, transgressive approach to both sex and also the urban landscape. And, and it sort of re, reconceives of Los Angeles as this cruising zone um, on which male desire is mapped. 
Um, and, and it really relies pretty heavily on sort of kinky sexuality. It's not uh, vanilla sex. It's, it's sort of rough bondage sex, spitting, slapping, kicking. And it all culminates in, in, a, in a fairly famous fisting scene um, in which Fred Halstead fists his, uh, what, what he then called his slave, who, his life partner, jo- Joey Yale. And, and so you see this throughout a lot of gay porn films of the 1970s. Wakefield Poole, who is another sort of gay liberationist era pioneer, um, he uses some very explicit fisting scenes in his 1974 film Moving. And, and, you know, I think in some ways all of this represents this really profound effort to rethink sex and sexuality and, and, you know, in kind of the ways that queer theory and historians of sexuality often think about in these uh, kind of theoretical terms inspired by the French theorist Michel Foucault. You know, we're talking about remappings of pleasure and desire moving beyond a genitally focused sexuality, all of that. I do think that was kind of explicitly in their heads as they were doing this. This was stuff they were into, although not so much pool. Um, but it was also an effort to sort of take a radical and revolutionary approach to sex. And that's why I think it's important, even though it sounds, you know, it can sound trivial, like, okay, so there's fisting and other sex. I mean, that's not necessarily intuitively fascinating to anybody, but, you know, I think, I think it, it does mark this as an historical moment um, with a radical sexual politics. And you see it actually in straight uh, hardcore films as well. So I read about this movie, Candy Stripers, which is almost the the sort of exemplar of the straight heterosexual hardcore utopia film it's set in a hospital and uh the female candy stripers staff are sort of these bubbly young women they're sexually servicing doctors nurses patients um and in some ways it's a very banal film full of heterosexual sex that you know is kind of in a screwball comedy mode but it's also got multiple scenes in which female characters sort of determine that being fisted is is part of their own kind of set of desires and pleasures um and and so there's something interesting going on here in the 70s with this you know kind of expanded sexuality that is not just about the male orgasm um which is generally kind of considered the you know kind of telos of hardcore pornography in general um and and so fisting is one example of the kind of thing that disappears i mean the two other examples that come to my mind are um water sports that is to say sort of urination and peeing scenes that are integrated into sexuality um you know is another thing you see in both straight and gay hardcore films and and generally done in this kind of playful way people are having sex they're having penetrative sex they're having oral sex they're peeing on one another um you know there is something again in which they're kind of expanding sexuality beyond just penetrative thrusting um and ejaculating and and so you know, those are moments, I think, where you do see the sexual imaginary constrict uh, when that material disappears in the 1980s and sex does suddenly become this kind of rote arc of, you know, tumescence, penetration, pumping and orgasm, I guess you'd say. Um, you know, a very male-dominated sexuality, of course, those are very masculinist terms, but those are the terms that kind of dominate straight and gay porn of that era um, until, you know, lesbian porn kind of emerges as its own uh terrain in the 1990s um and 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 complicating it slightly the one other thing i would call attention to is that the other stuff that disappears in the 1980s is also the kind of rape and sexual violence um Mm -hmm. which are actually really a staple of 
heterosexual hardcore porn in the 70s. And, you know, this is a complicated topic, I think, for a lot of people to talk about because the interpretive framework that's almost inescapable here is the feminist anti-porn movement, the the kind of thinkers of the 80s, Andrea uh, Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon. Um, and I don't think people generally are, are eager to be affiliated with that analysis today. And, and for very good reason. I mean, we can talk about that if you want to come back to it. It's you know, there were a lot of problematic aspects of the feminist anti-porn movement, but in acknowledging that, it, it is simply also an historical fact that misogynistic rape scenes were a staple of heterosexual hardcore in the 70s. And so those also disappear in the 1980s when these movies resurface on home video. Um, and I think that's what leads into the second part of your question. You know, what were the factors influencing this? And Certainly one of them, a dominant one, I think, was the feminist anti-porn movement, which, you know, was suggesting that especially heterosexual porn, but not just heterosexual porn, was an act of figurative and literal violence against women. Um, You know, and that was not a look that the hardcore porn industry really wanted as they were sort of morphing from being this outlaw underground industry into a sort of more mainstream capitalist corporate endeavor. And, and so they were very eager to distance themselves from these charges of misogyny. Um, but then there's also other factors coming into play too, right? I mean, it's the Reagan era and a more conservative justice department means a greater fear of obscenity prosecutions. Um, and this is something, you know, I've written a lot about obscenity law in the past. And so in this article, I don't really go into any particular case law or, you know, deep legal analysis. But this is unquestionably another structural backdrop of this, right? I mean, these people do not want to be arrested. And and many of them ultimately are um, under Reagan and also the first Bush administration um, after the Mies Commission report comes out in 1986 and sort of leads to a resurgence of obscenity prosecutions. Um, So I think those are some of the factors maybe that you were asking about there. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, I mean, the thing that I, I couldn't help but wonder uh, about that aspect of the paper was, you know, like, what were the dominant factors determining what people chose to excise from the text? I mean, do you think they were primarily responding to market demand, questions of kind of perception of the sort of kinds of texts that they were creating or concerns about potential like legal liability or even criminal prosecution? Or is it really just like an amalgamation of all those factors sort of kind of collectively determining the kinds of decision-making process they engaged in? I mean, surely the interest in the sexual practices in question didn't necessarily change. I mean, I guess it, it might've, but it's not obvious to me that, that it did. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the amalgamation of factors is definitely true. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's the kind of corporate interest in a couple's market here. Uh, there's the interest in sort of, sanitizing the image of the industry. Um, but, but I do think the legal concerns loomed large. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, a good portion of the porn industry is centered in Southern California and the LAPD sort of played an 
an outsized role in shaping what was permissible just because it happened to be the local uh, sort of policing force. And and they did tend to take a, a pretty restrictive approach uh, when it came to transgressive sex acts. And so that sort of in itself then shapes the national market. Um, and of course, you know, when the, there's also the fear of shipping things across state lines, I mean, uh, under Reagan and, and Bush, that's certainly one of the preferred methods of obscenity prosecution is busting people in Utah or Montana or Florida uh, who shipped things across state lines from, you know, LA or Massachusetts or New York. And, and so all of those anxieties are, are very much at play with the shipping of home video for sure. Um, and, and then, you know, there's the question of, of, market that you allude to, which I, th- I think, the, you know, the porn industry, uh, you know, obviously today with digital methods of, you know, collecting search data and things like that, they've got a much more refined feedback loop into what people are interested in, I think. Um, you know, obviously the technology was not as refined in the 80s. And I, I think there was a lot of guessing, but there there was, you know, home video did facilitate the rise of niche markets as well. And so you do see sort of extreme and BDSM and sort of kink uh, niche market porn uh, that it's, you know, done on a much more DIY sort of zero budget manner. And in some ways that also takes away the necessity of trying to sort of cater to everyone in the more dominant mainstream representations. And so I think that was a factor as well. Um, I mean, so if you look at sort of narratives of gay male sexuality, with the rise of the AIDS epidemic, um, a sexual practice like fisting actually gets a lot of media attention, especially in the early years when you know HIV and vectors of transmission um, were not very fully understood. Fisting comes under a lot of fire in in the especially conservative press. It's it helps demonize gay men being seen associated with you know perverse sexuality, um, but it's also genuinely a source of concern for epidemiologists. Um, and, and so because of all of that, you know, there's also that going on. There's this sense in which there's other anxieties coming into play and, you know, fisting may not have the same kind of sexual connotation that it did in the 1970s now in this new, you know, kind of regime of, of, of epidemic. Mm-hmm. So, so interesting. I, I just came back from the bastard film encounter. I think it was the fourth mm-hmm. iteration and my friend John Koska showed a short clip from a film that he found that reminded me very much of this this project. And it was something clearly cut out of an existing film on on 16 millimeter that was uh, a man in silhouette who was a a gay hustler. And among other things in this clip, he described being paid to have sexual intercourse with an underage boy. And it, it struck me that like, so as John described it, I mean, this was clearly something that originally had been in another film as part of that film and had been taken out of it because of the subject matter of of the content. And it reminded me very much of the kind of phenomenon that, that you're talking about that like, this seemed like it was content that somebody decided that, you know, we can't have this in, in the movie anymore. Am I reading that correctly? 
Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I just want to say I I, I, I love uh, John Koska's article actually on uh, Joe Gage's El Paso Wrecking Corporation, which which I cite in the article. Um, so his, yeah, his his he's a, a really smart scholar of especially gay hardcore history. And um, in the original version of this article, which uh, went about six thousand words over the word count of the journal. Uh, which caused some headache for me and uh, our, our wonderful issue editor, Elena Gorfinkel, uh, who was very, very patient and sort of thinking this through with me because they're not going to make an exception to allow me 16,000 words. Um, and what, I, what I wound up doing was actually taking out uh, a pretty lengthy discussion of exactly that phenomenon because of all of these you uh. know, sort of contested and transgressive and controversial se- uh, sexualities, I mean, nothing is as much a red line in the 1980s United States as intergenerational sex um, and the eroticization of children. I mean, that, that is something that is, you know, just completely unacceptable in 1980s American culture. And it's something that's used as a weapon against gay culture, um, despite the fact that, of course, you know, the overwhelming preponderance of child sexual abuse is intrafamilial and heterosexual. Um, but it goes back to Cold War tropes about perverse gay sexuality, of course, and then Anita Bryant when she launches the Christian right anti-gay crusade in the 1970s, you know, sort of smears gay men as sexual predators. And so this is a very fraught issue. Um, but it but it turns out, I mean, actually in the 1970s, when you know there was a much more laissez-faire approach to these issues, um, that straight and gay hardcore movies did tend to offer underage characters. Now, they were not necessarily played by underage performers. I think that's an important distinction. We're not talking about actual child pornography here, but we're definitely talking about the eroticization of teenage characters. Um, and uh, overwhelmingly, that all gets deleted as well on, on video versions. Um, even in the advertisements for a, a straight porn movie like Dixie, which comes out in 1976, they, they essentially, the entire hook of this movie is, here's an underage teenage girl. Um, now she's, you know, again, she's played by an adult performer, Abigail Clayton, but she looks very youthful. And so they really run with that. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that's something that, uh, you know, crosses both sort of cultural, political and legal lines in the 1980s. And so does lead to sort of a mass purging as well. Um, you'll see moments in some of these movies where characters... Uh, are mentioned by age and they actually redub it occasionally um, so that we no longer have 15 year old characters. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that's exactly what that scene is, is sort of tapping into. Um, and that's something mm. that I, you know, I may come back to at some point because I have this nearly article length outtake um, on the topic. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Um, so, so the, you know, the other, one of the other observations that really struck me in the article was this dialectic of censorship and, and memory, right? Where you observe that like when things are removed or suppressed by sort of government mandate, there's a way in which that, that erasure is remembered and actually kind of preserves the existence of the original text. Whereas the, the kind of, textual changes that you're talking about are like, quote unquote, voluntary in a sense. And because of that, they're sort of forgotten 
and erased and we don't see them. And I just thought that that was a really fascinating observation. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I, I owe a lot to David Church, uh, you know, whose work I'm, I'm citing there, his, his book, Disposable Passions, um, talks about some of this. And so I'm very indebted to him. Um, and, and also, actually, I think since writing the article, I may not have had a chance to cite it because I read it after, but um, the historian Lisa Siegel has a great article about interwar British censorship and the sort of everyday censorship versus the spectacular. So I do think what I'm describing plays into what they're talking about as well, which is that you know, most first there, there's sort of three layers, right? I mean, there's the spectacularized cases where, you know, deep throat is banned in New York or, you know, Lady Chatterley's lover is banned. And those become the ways we narrate the history of censorship, right? I mean, they're, they're spectacularly visible and they're about texts that stay in print and circulate uh, once, you know, sort of time and culture catch up with them. And then, and then there's the the sort of second tier, right, of the everyday censorship of, you know, a video store bust in Memphis, Tennessee or something. And, you know, those are not remembered, but they do leave a paper trail, right? And so what we're talking about here is is an entirely third tier of things that happen internally within companies that probably have archives, but that they're, they're proprietary archives that we have no access to. And from my limited experience sort of reaching some of the people who did this editing, you know, a lot of the time they didn't leave an archive anyway. I mean, it was a phone call and, you know, the head of the, the company just said, make this stuff disappear. Um, and, and so in that sense, you know, yeah, there, there's a perverse irony here, right? That censorship does preserve and document exactly that which it seeks to render invisible, whereas this more voluntary, preemptive, industrial self-censorship goes, you know, much more under the radar and actually eludes historians. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so one of the other things that really profoundly struck me about this piece is that I've been doing a lot of work myself on medieval Irish hagiography. <laughs> wow. And, and a lot of the scholarship, most of the scholarship in the area is primarily philological, right? In other mm. words, the, the project is to take existing texts and sort of by deduction, and examination determine the sort of subject matter of the original texts and how they developed over time. And what struck me about your article is that you're really using a very similar kind of philological method, a sort of very like kind of, uh, you know, like a, 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 a sort of a method of scholarship developed for the examination of liturgical texts to examine pornographic ones and identify sort of the desires and representations that were suppressed because they didn't fit the canon in some case. And that, that parallel was just like the, this, this sort of uncanny to me. I, I love that. I mean, obviously, I had not thought of it in precisely those terms, um, but but yeah, I absolutely agree that I mean, it, it is very much about sort of an archaeological approach, right? And and I do think too, it's also partly about these siloed areas of knowledge production. And so, on the one side, we have scholars who write about this who are brilliant and and you know deeply informed by theory and have these amazing things to say, but are not necessarily immersed in fan culture. 
um, and often kind of brush it aside and ignore it. And then on the other side, we have fan culture, which especially since, you know, the sort of first wave of internet fan communities, I mean, I'd say the mid nineties, probably some like, you know, ARPANET hardcore people would scoff at that, but you know, the, the internet as I knew it, I guess, coalesced in the mid 1990s. And, you know, these were sites of, of real knowledge production about this, these kind of precise details of how texts are, are changed. And, you know, as somebody who kind of came of age as a scholar with one foot in each of these camps, sort of having an interest in the, the fan culture world, um, but also taking very seriously the scholarly approach to texts, um, you know, it did always trouble me that this knowledge was was out there um, and, and did not seem to be drawn upon by, by the, the majority of people working on pornography. And, and so, so in that sense, I mean, that's the other way I sort of conceptualized it was trying to pull together the, these bodies of knowledge, both of which I think are, are really valuable, but, you know, each of which really does have its limitations as has been practiced. Right. So in closing, Wit, I, I wonder if you could reflect briefly on what you think this project tells us or helps us understand about the kind of modern history of sexuality, its representation, and the consumption of those representations. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, one thing it shows, and, and this is, you know, maybe fairly obvious, but that a lot of the sort of modulation and reconfiguration of sexual normativity, you know, does not necessarily happen under the spotlight of history in, in well-preserved, well-documented ways. Um, you know, you, you see, obviously, you know, Supreme Court cases on miscegenation or sodomy are, are very hyper-visible moments of kind of recalibrating sexual norms. But I think a lot of the ways these processes work you know, are more like this, more banal, more hidden, more invisible. Um, and, and I do think that's important in sort of really thinking critically about how to track the history of sexuality and sexual representation and the kind of parameters of the permissible um, and the forces that go into shaping the kind of collective sexual imaginaries of both heterosexuality and, and the queer world. Um, and in saying all that, I feel like I forgot the second half of the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'm wondering like about kind of consumption as well and sort of how we think about sort of the way that people think about kind of mediating sexual performance and sexual expression in textual form and sort of how we think about what people wanted or what people thought people wanted at different points in time. Yeah. So, I mean – and, and that is one of those perpetually tricky and elusive questions, right? So, I mean, how were renters engaging with these movies in the 1980s? And how did that differ from the ways, you know, viewers approached them in theater seats in the 1970s? I mean, a lot of that is an extremely elusive history, even though it's, again, in, in the lived memory of many. Um, and I think, I think in some ways, that's not as much what I'm trying to do in this article as to put porn scholars in that seat um, and mm. an attempt to suggest a more material approach to this history for the scholars who are watching these films and to really encourage people not to flatten these texts into sort of, you know, some transcendent textuality that exists outside of a video cassette or a 16 millimeter film print. 
Um, because I do think that that is, is a sort of error that, that gets commonly made. And I really want to encourage people to sort of historicize the very texts they're using to mount these analyses. And so I think that's what I was kind of hoping to do. If, if, if there's any intervention I'm trying to make methodologically, that's it to sort of really encourage a, a materialist history of pornography in that regard. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, I would characterize that as like a philological approach. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. and, and I, and I think that it's fantastic and just absolutely fascinating. And I really appreciate you sharing it with me today. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Exciting entertainment news today is about the new motion picture, Therese and Isabel. The critics applauded, calling Therese and Isabel a sizzler from France. Makes the fox look like a milk-fed puppy. Therese and Isabel will be the most talked-about movie around. Produced and directed by Radley Metzger, it stars Essie Person of I, a Woman and Anna Gale. Persons under 18 cannot be admitted.